John's account of this um, multi-miracle moment is very interesting in a sense that it is barely interesting at all. Uh, This past week, uh, as Robbie kind of took a little jab there, this past week, uh, Robbie was more than excited. He said at least two or three times during the week that he was only reading six verses as uh, the, for the scripture reading this morning. Many of y'all who have been with Rocky for quite some time know generally the elders get up here and they read somewhere between 300 and 345 verses. Um, and so six is, uh, you know, we could do it in our sleep. Uh, but um, that's the funny thing in a sense about John's recording of this account, isn't it? It's just uh, so boring. John uh, did not burn a lot of ink describing at least three, possibly even six miracles where Jesus is, once again, kind of put on display as the sovereign king over everything. You would think that if you're an eyewitness to such a thing that you would provide a little bit more information. So. Before we get into our message, I just want to kind of talk about these three, possibly six miracles here. First of all, the, the, the for sure miracles that happen here are the first one, of course, Jesus walks on water, okay? Liberal theologians, unfortunately, try to say that he was not walking on the water, but he was walking by the water. That word on in the Greek could mean on or by. And so he was kind of on the shore hollering out to people that were in the boats. But context in Greek always determines what is being said, and we know from Matthew's account that the boat by this time was a long way, many stadia is basically kind of the the, the term used there, it's basically anywhere between six to seven hundred feet from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And so the boat being several miles off Sure, potentially even in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, Jesus probably would have had a hard time being seen, much less being heard, if he were on the shore. The second miracle that we know for sure happens, of course, is that Peter walks on the water. This is that episode, John excludes Peter altogether, and my first theory was that John and Peter had a, th- Peter had a thing, they just didn't like one another, but uh, that's probably not the case. But Matthew is the only one who records Peter walking on the water. Both John and Mark, which also record this situation, do not record Peter walking on the water. Kind of interesting. Number three miracle for sure that happens is that Jesus stops the bad weather. Okay, so in Matthew 14, 24, it says the boat was beaten by the waves. That word beaten literally means to torture someone. Okay, it's a torment kind of, you know, thing that's happening. And so, uh, we live down here, you know, by water, and we've been in boats maybe sometimes where, you know, you're just kind of bouncing and bouncing and bouncing, and, and it's more miserable than fun. And that's kind of what's happening here. They're in this boat, and these waves are constantly being beaten against them. In fact, the word tossed is used in the King James Version. So later on in this chapter, when it says Peter saw the wind and began to sink, the word wind really means a strong, powerful wind. And I'm just trying to give you a picture that this is a major storm that's happening here on the Sea of Galilee, but this mighty storm stops as soon as Jesus steps on the boat. Literally, I mean, I could almost, you know, if, if, if you uh, knew the story 
and you were back then, I can see a lot of people just watching for his foot to hit. First thing on the boat, he steps over and then boom, and then there's peace. Now these are three of the for sure miracles. There's a potential of three nearly sure miracles that happened as well, okay? And one of those, number four is Jesus caused the bad weather. Jesus caused the bad weather. Now there's no record of this, so we can't necessarily go out on this. Bad weather happens all the time on the Sea of Galilee. Apparently, the Sea of Galilee was 700 feet below sea level. Cold winds coming down from the mountains and from the plains from two different directions hit the nice, warm, moist air of the sea. And how many of you are from Oklahoma? You understand what it means when cold air hits hot air, tornado. And that's essentially what happens is the water just starts gurgling up and there's this big storm happens. So you could just say, hey, this was just a natural occurring storm that happens on the Sea of Galilee, but the storm seems awfully purposeful, doesn't it? So there's a real possibility that Jesus, you know, caused the bad weather. The fifth potential miracle that happened was Peter sinks and gets back up on water. Okay, and so Jesus does not offer Peter kind of a plot of dry ground or a rock to stand on until they get into the boat. He's out in the middle of the water, he sees the wind, he loses faith, he starts to sink, and then Jesus comes and reaches and grabs him and pulls him up, but what does he pull him back up on? The sea again. And so that could be a, uh, either a reoccurring miracle or a continuation of Peter walking on water. But then there's this awfully curious one at the end. Number six is the boat is zipped to shore. John said at the end of his account in verse 21, then they were glad to take him into the boat and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. If there were some miles offshore, which is what we think they were, if they were some miles offshore and you're using a word to kind of describe how they get back to land, immediately is not the word you would use. It's kind of a, a weird word to describe what took place. So there is a possibility, and, and, and there are some you know, really smart people, smarter than I am, that uh, say yes, but there's a possibility. They were either kind of miraculously zipped to their destination or miraculously zapped to their destination. They either, you know, or disappear and show up. Whether they were zipped or zapped, you know, a, a potential miracle took place as well. So you can see that it's really strange. Peter being eyewitness to all of these great things, wastes enough ink just to fill six verses and leaves out major details on what is happening here. Why in the world is John's account so brief? And well, the answer is, you now have one more reason to trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior so that you can spend forever with Him in heaven and ask John yourself. In other words, there's no specific reference to John wrote it shortly, that sort of thing, for this particular reason. Now, I do have a theory, and we're going to deal with that at the end, and I think it's a, a really good one. But I think if John had his druthers, I think he would have skipped this account altogether, but there's something that happens in Jesus walking on the water that needed to be said in the book of John in order for his account of the bread of life discourse that we're about to leap into uh, makes sense. 
Because in that discord, well, I'll wait till the end. All right. So John had to include it, but he didn't want to, I think, and so I think he just kept it super simple so he could move on to something he wanted to write about. I mean, bottom line, the Holy Spirit told John what to write, and John wrote it. I mean, that's the bottom line, but I think there's, there's something to that, which seals this sermon up very nicely. Okay, so here we go. Now we're in the message. Here's where you start filling in the blanks. Okay, so point number one. Jesus, puts, Jesus put the disciples in a very challenging situation. Jesus put the disciples in a very challenging situation. If you remember last week, if you were with us last week, if you're not, if you're a guest with us first time this Sunday, we're glad you guys are with us and it's good to see you all here. But uh, if you were with us last week, remember it was the feeding of the 5,000 and that at the end of that event, uh, the people started really getting unruly and mobbing up saying, we want to make Jesus king whether he likes it or not. And Jesus, uh, uh, caringly, caring for his disciples said, you guys get on the boat and get out of here. And then, uh, but he does tell the folks, because uh, he's the son of God, he can do whatever he wants, but he, uh, he does tell the folks, you know, disperses the people, and then he goes up onto a mountain to pray as they're going out on the boat. But putting them on the boat and saying, go to the other side was for them, for the disciples, a very challenging situation. First thing, letter number A is, it was physically challenging, okay? So, so this was a physical challenge. Now, remember, we talked about how tired the disciples were. They had just gotten back from being sent out to uh, preach the Word, to cast out demons, and to heal. So that was probably a several-day trip. They came back to give their report. Jesus says, get in the boat. We're going to go to a desolate place because you guys need to rest. Okay, and so they, he recognizes that they're tired. They get in the boat. They come to shore, and all of a sudden, there's several thousand people there. And then they just probably went, oh, you got to be kidding me. You know, and then that was the one time I quoted Pastor Kent Hughes as these guys getting people to death. You know, and so in that situation, if y'all don't mind, I am going crazy here with this jacket. Is this, is this weird? I'm sorry if this, uh, I'm sorry, I just, I'm just, it's warm. I know that was odd, I, I apologize. But this was a, a, a physically challenging thing. So they get, in the, and they get off the boat and they minister to these people for the entire day. Jesus healing and teaching and they're, you know, kind of fielding the situation and that sort of thing. And then after that, you know, you have the feeding of the 5,000 and that takes place and I'm sure they're kind of walking around serving and that sort of thing. And so they are physically spent and now they get in a boat, tired, beat down, and all of a sudden they face a storm. John said it was a strong wind and they had only rode somewhere between three to four miles. Mark said they were making headway painfully and the wind was against them. Matthew says they were beaten by the waves and they had been rowing much all night. Because remember, it kind of starts in the evening when the sun is going down and Jesus doesn't come to them until the fourth watch. And the fourth watch basically is between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. So we only thought that they were tired last week, right? I mean, they are exhausted at this time. This was a physically challenging thing that Jesus had put them in. But not only that, the second thing is they, their faith was challenged. So that's point B. 
their faith was challenged. And of course, the most obvious example of this was Peter. In Matthew 14, verses 30 and 31, it says, when Peter saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And then in verse 31, it says, Jesus immediately reached out his hand, took hold of him, and said, O you of little faith, why do you doubt? So Jesus gives the reason why Peter starts to sink, and then rebukes him for it. His faith was challenged, and he failed the test. This was a thing that really challenged their faith. But also, the third thing is, letter number C, is their intellect was challenged. When the laws of nature start to be called into question, you know, as, as the sea becomes a sidewalk, you're going to have to kind of conclude that their heads were spinning, right? I mean. Things like gravity, things like you're going to sink if you stand on water, things like when you inhale, oxygen comes in, when you exhale, air goes out, that sort of thing. These things we kind of take for granted are just kind of normal things, and all of a sudden they're being challenged. When you have been rowing for hours, beaten by the waves, and the storm quits immediately when the Lord sets foot in your boat, that is a mind-blowing moment. When Jesus comes walking to them on the sea, and their first conclusion is, it's a ghost! Because no human being can walk or float on the top of water. It had to have been some sort of apparition, some kind of ghost that just showed up. But it's a human being that gets into their boat. These are the things that are just literally at this point probably just rocking the disciples' world. And Jesus had to put them in a really, I mean, that, that had to be a very challenging situation when you really think about it, didn't it? Point number two, Jesus comes to them on his time clock. As was said before, Jesus came to the disciples in the middle of the night, the fourth watch. John points out it was now dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. In the case of this story, it was for some reason more important for Jesus to go up further into the mountain and pray alone, but this is not really an unusual thing for the Lord to do, right? Remember the story of Lazarus being risen from the dead, where it says in John 11, it says, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister Lazarus. Okay, so there's the statement of fact, he loved them. Verse 6, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now, we know it was to show his greater power in a sense that Lazarus had to die in order for Jesus to raise him from the dead, but if you were in the guts of that moment, not aware of the future, you would think, you know, this is an awfully strange way to display love for somebody. When, when you have the ability in and of yourself to heal someone of any disease whatsoever, you've already proven it and that sort of thing, and then you hear someone who's precious to you is ill. And you say, let's wait about 48 hours. That's a very strange thing to do, but the Lord operates on His own time clock and for His own purposes. Isaiah 55 verses 6 through 9 says, seek the Lord while He may be found, call upon Him while He is near. 
Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And what that basically means is, it says here that the Lord will pardon the wicked. And folks, if you, and, and we kind of, you know, have gotten, gotten used to growing up in church saying, yes, that's great, that's wonderful. But that's unjust. On that side of the cross, that is incredibly unjust. To, to look at the wicked and say, you are forgiven? And people say, wait a minute, Lord, wait a minute, God, what are, what are you saying here? That you're going to have mercy on the wicked when they are perfectly worthy of your judgment. And God says, my ways are not your ways. Jesus, why are you waiting two days? My ways are not your ways. Jesus, why did you wait till the middle of the night? Did you see them? They're getting beaten up by the waves. I mean, they're in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. It's not like they're going to just swim to shore. Not very easily. It's a real threat going on here. Why did you wait several hours before you just showed up on the scene? My ways are not your ways. Jesus operates on his own time clock for his own purposes. Point number three. Fearful moments find their relief in Jesus. Fearful moments find their relief in Jesus. Point number A is this. Their fear was real. Mark's account describes their seeing Jesus in this way. Mark 6, verses 49 and 50. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. That word cried out literally means to scream. As we say here in lower Alabama, they hollered. A couple of decades ago, and I, I didn't ask this particular child for permission on this, I felt really bad, but I'm going to share a story. Um, this child is now 20-ish, so I hope, uh, you know, they're not watching. But anyway, uh, and they're in another state. But um, so, a couple of decades ago, okay, so Kesed is not even a gleam in our eyeballs kind of thing, okay? And so, we have our three children, we have Josh, Allison, and Lydia, okay? We make a trip to Disney with Melissa's parents. Okay, and so we went to the It's a Bug Life show. Has anyone been to the It's a Bug Life show? Okay. We're, we're not supposed to give positive reviews to Disney, I know, these days, but uh, we, went to, we went to It's a Bug Life show, okay? And for some reason, and, and, and you know, hurting like cattle, you know, you're kind of kind of going in and, and finding a seat and that sort of thing. For some reason, our family kind of got split up. Okay, and so you kind of had, I was in the very back for some reason, kind of towards the middle you had Melissa and her mom and Lydia and I think Josh, and then at the very front you had my father-in-law, 
Papa, you know, Earl, and he was there with Allison. He had kind of Allison on his lap and that sort of thing. So I'm kind of sitting in the back and we're watching the show, and, you know, everyone's like, ooh, ah, you know, and all the stuff that's going on, all the special effects. And then all of a sudden, the, if you remember the show, the grasshopper comes bursting out of the wall and he's the bad guy. And he happened to be right in front of where Allie and Earl were sitting. And I just, my first thought was, that's not good. That is not good. And you hear over the crowd going, whoa, whoa, you hear, Wee! and Allison just lost it. I mean, she just lost control and put a death grip on her papaw and screamed at the top of her lungs. In fact, so much so she just got so riled up that he had to leave early and just kind of take her out because she was so agitated. I mean, screaming in a scary moment is, is the signal to everyone else around you that you've lost it, right? You've lost it. In fact, our children try to do that to us, right? Come into the door and it's like, bah! you know, and you're like, you scream and, and it's success. You know, I cause my parents who are always in control to somehow lose control in that moment or something like that. I mean, you have fully given in to the shock and fear of the moment and the, and the gurgling happens and the anxiety of the moment happens and all of a sudden that stuff's got to get out and it comes out usually in a scream. It's like a giant animatronic grasshopper blowing through a wall right in front of you when you're three to four years of age. I mean, she couldn't control herself. She had no, nothing to gauge this by. Explosion and just blah kind of thing. Well, here it says that as the disciples are in the boat and they see Jesus, it says that they are terrified. And that's what that word means, literally to stir up, to agitate something. And they were literally just quaking in their sandals. Trepidation is another word that could be used there. It's just a, they were just torn up inside and they, you know, screaming and terrified in the situation. Their fear was real. And some of us know what that is. Some of us, Disney set aside or getting scared by your child when you come into a door set aside, but some of you are in moments right now where if you were honest, you're trying to be the epitome of self-control right now, but if you were honest, you would say, I'm scared to death. I'm, I'm, I'm quaking right now. You, you don't understand what, what I'm going through right now. I am scared to death. The good news is, and the second part, letter B, is their fear was not the final word. Their fear was not the final word. John's account completely counteracts their fear. And this is a remarkable thing because they, they had some serious, all-possessing fear going on. And many of us maybe have that fear as well. And maybe you're thinking, what in the world can overcome this? What in the world is going to stop me from being so afraid all the time? So how did Jesus cause such fear to cease being the final word? Here's a couple of things that are just absolutely amazing. Number one is this, he provided himself as the sufficient reason not to fear. I love that the Lord didn't give some sort of 12-step program. Don't have anything against 12-step programs necessarily, but they can tend to sometimes fall short or don't come across as just an absolute proven fact for every single person. In this situation, Jesus doesn't give the program, he doesn't give the steps, he gives himself. 
Verse 20 says, he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. That it is I, you know, know, who is the I here? He is the one who has proven repeatedly that he is sovereign over all things. He's the one who changes water to wine, right? He's the one who creates food from nothing. He's the one who, who healed the lame man. He's the one who healed the official's son with a word. The official was miles away from home. The son was miles in the other direction. And Jesus said, when you go home, he's going to be healthy. And he was. When he said, it is I, the disciples could have said, all right, problem solved. It is I. Okay, it's Jesus. Problem solved because the Lord is sufficient for all things. But not only that, the second thing is, he provided himself as the authoritative reason to not fear. He said, it is I, do not be afraid. Now, it's a possibility, Robbie and I were talking about this last week, um, that it is I, ego eimi in the Greek. It basically means I am, which if you go back to Exodus, that's the personal name for God. Now there's smart people who say this is just a perfectly good way for just saying it is I. Anyone would say ego me and they would know that that just means it is I. Because it's linked to Jesus, does that mean he's kind of affirming himself as deity? And the answer is I don't know. But it fits really well with the idea that he is claiming deity because when he says, it is I, do not be afraid, the do not be afraid is a command. And so essentially what he's basically saying is, Jesus is not saying, you know, I am sufficient, I can handle this, do not be afraid, but he is also saying, you know, because I am who I am, then you obey me and stop being afraid. Fearlessness is both a faith issue, a trusting in his sufficiency, but it's also an obedience issue. Fearless people who understand that the fearlessness comes from the very character of Jesus Christ himself understand not only that Jesus can calm their fears because he is sufficient, but Jesus ought to be obeyed. His authority should be honored. Point four, and we will land the plane with this. John's reason and our lives. John's reason and our lives. Okay, so here is my, I guess, theory or whatever why John kept the story short. Okay, the disciples in the crowds who followed Jesus are about to, in the, in the all of, I mean, not all of that discourse, that's another discourse, in the, in the discourse on the bread of life, the, 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 everyone who's following Jesus, from his inner circle, the disciples or the apostles, to all the other hundreds of people that are just kind of hanging around or whatever, they're about to face a major line in the sand. You know what a line in the sand is, right? You know, cross that one, cross that one. You know, the Bugs Bunny cartoon where he does a thousand of those until he finally gets someone to fall off a cliff. 
you know, that sort of thing. And so, so you know, you draw a line in the sand and it's a challenge. Will, are you brave enough to do this? Or are you this or something like that? And so, so they are about to face a major line in the sand in the rest of chapter six. We're going to be dipping into that next week as we look at verses 22 through 40. And then Pastor Robbie, Lord willing, will be taking on the rest of chapter six in the next two weeks. So yes, verse 22 through 40. So whoever's reading next week, I'm sorry, elders, you're back to... 392 verses at a time. Okay, so Jesus is about to, to say some hard things for the purpose of basically drawing the line between true followers and false followers. That's what he's doing here. He's been doing it up to this point. It does apply, but there are other things that we had to learn, and so we didn't necessarily deal with false followers and true followers. But he's about to draw a hardcore line on this issue. And believe it or not, up to this point, the the jury is still out for the disciples. You kind of think, surely enough, I mean, Jesus says, you know, eat my flesh and drink my blood and other things like that. He says, you know, will you leave me and that sort of thing. And you would expect the, the people who are just there to see the tricks to say, oh, this is way too weird and hard for me, man. Have a nice day. But right now, the jury is still out for the disciples as to whether they would do something like this. You say, what do you mean? Well, if you look at Mark's account of Jesus walking on the water in Mark chapter 6, his account ends with verses 51 and 52, and it says, and he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. For, and that four word is a powerful word here, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Mark says the disciples, as a result of everything that just happened, were utterly astonished. That word literally means they, uh, King James, for some reason, just can't contain this one thing in two words. They, King James says, sore amazed in themselves beyond measure and wondered. Wow. Basically, they were out of their minds astonished. And Mark gives a reason they were astonished. He says, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. They did not get the message the Lord tried to convey through the loaves and fishes. And that just blows your mind when you think about it. I mean, I don't know necessarily how the Lord orchestrated the moment. Did he have kind of the baskets behind him where no one saw the fish just showing up and the bread just showing up, and then he started handing it out where they're, you know, little children trying to see, and they're, there's one, there's one, you know, or something like that. Did the apostles, as they were carrying, you know, a basket, you know, that had about 20 fish and 50 loaves or something like that, get it to the crowd and just kind of walking and carrying it. And when they got it there, it was doubled already or something like that. I don't know exactly. The Bible doesn't explain exactly what happened, but 5,000 men plus people, so we're thinking probably around 20,000 people, if they had three fish each and a couple of loaves and that sort of thing, we're talking, you know, thousands of pounds of food that shows up from nowhere. And so Jesus just kind of puts himself on display as, you know, the sovereign over this situation, the sovereign over matter, being able to create things. He is the creator. He is equal with God. As God in the flesh, he was able to do the things he did. And so the message was sent, and it met with hardened hearts. So the Lord says, well, okay. 
You didn't get it when I controlled the bread, a little boy's lunch. You didn't get it when I took a little boy's lunch and made a huge feast out of it. I'm going to take something a little bit larger. I'm going to show you that I can control the Sea of Galilee. I'm going to go a little bit bigger here. And they got it. Matthew says, when Jesus got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshiped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. So, not trying to steal Robbie's thunder, but as John gets on to describing the Bread of Life discourse, Jesus draws the line for these disciples in verses 67 through 69 when he says, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter tends to put his foot in his mouth, and this is just one of his bright and shining moments. But it was based on something, wasn't it? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God because you fed 5,000 people. Because you walked on the Sea of Galilee. Because I foolishly just kind of said, can I come too? And I did. I walked on the water with you, healing people, all of these miracles are taking place and other things like that, and our conclusion is not, do it again, Jesus, do it again. Our conclusion is, you are the Holy One of God, and we worship you. We give you the reverence that you so wonderfully deserve. You say, wait a second, your point was John's reason and our lives. And we'll end it with this. I pray that when the Lord puts us in challenging situations, and He operates on His own time clock, not ours, He operates on His time clock for His own purposes and in the darkness and fear. When he finally comes, my prayer is that he will not be greeted with hardened hearts. My prayer is that he will not be greeted with hardened hearts because you have, you're exasperated, because you're tired, because you are uh, just overwhelmed with problems, health issues broken relationships, whatever the situation you find yourself in, in the darkness and fear when He finally comes, will He be met with a hardened heart? Lord, I needed You two months ago, and You're here right now, no thank You. Lord, what happened when that should have happened? I pray that we will do like the disciples did in this story, and when Jesus sets his foot into our lives, we will worship.
we will worship. I pray that we will have hearts open and bent towards His righteousness and we will understand Him for who He is. And when He says, it is I, do not be afraid. We will recognize the it is I as He is sufficient to take anything away whenever He wishes on His own time clock, but until then He will grant me the sustaining grace to see this thing through. Or we also recognize the it is I, the great I am, the Son of God, God in the flesh, and we bow the knee to Him and we worship Him for who He is, no matter how horrible our life seems to be at this time. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You so much for Your Word. Thank You, Father, for this short account of an amazing event in the book of John and for what it says to us this morning. God, I pray and ask that you will help us, Lord, to have the honesty to examine our hearts and to see if we have hardened hearts towards you, Lord. God, it is so easy when when a person is hurt and sometimes even hurt often that their hearts become hard. And Lord, it's so easy, unfortunately, and Lord, please forgive us, but it is so easy to become hard towards You because You are the one who is supposed to take it all away. And it's not gone away. Please give us the faith to look past our circumstances and our own selfish, sinful hearts to the one who says, it is I, do not be afraid. Grant us, O God, the endurance and the faith to see these things through that you put us in, Lord, these difficult and challenging moments that stretch us, that harm us, Lord, that that cause us to get to a place of deep darkness and fear and then to hear your voice once again. Lord, may we hear your voice. I pray, O God, asking for deliverance for people right now who are going through difficult times. But Lord, I also pray that you would grant them the, the, the long game mentality. You would give them the understanding that sometimes a victory in times of difficulty is not that the difficulty goes away, but it has to do with the attitude of the heart while the difficulty is taking place. And so I pray that they would display your greatness and your glory despite their difficulty. God, I pray for the hard hearts here that do not know you as Lord and Savior. I pray, oh God, that you would be mighty to save, that you would sovereignly break through those hard hearts so that they might see their sin their need for forgiveness, and that they would repent and receive the forgiveness of sins, trusting in you by faith as their Lord and Savior. Lord, may today be the day of salvation for them. And again, Father, we just thank you and worship you and praise you 
in the good times and in the bad, knowing that you love us and command us not to be afraid. And I pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.